Today we look at the last of our heroes, Daniel, and we'll find that he finds his strength as he opens the doors and prays towards Jerusalem, which is a symbol of the Savior that was to come. We find our strength in the same place, the Savior who has come and lived perfectly in our place. Daniel finds his strength to not only make decisions on big things like when his life is threatened to go into the lion's den, but even every single day as he did his job. And we pray that we have that same aptitude and that same uh, commitment not to compromise. This sermon was originally recorded October 30th, 2011 at Castle Rock Middle School. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Uh, the section of scripture we're going to be looking at is Daniel chapter 6, so you can open up your service folder if you'd like. It should say Sermon Heroes of the Old Testament, Daniel. This is the last of our heroes, and I'm kind of sad. We did it seven weeks, and it seemed to go by pretty fast, at least for me. I enjoyed um, looking back at some of the familiar names that you know and, and some maybe not so familiar and trying to tell their story again so it means something in your everyday life. I don't want to bore you with history, but I say that every week, so now I think it's my secret plan. Um, but the timeline we're talking about is Joseph would have been about two, more than 2,000 years before Jesus, um, uh, not quite before 2,000 years before Jesus, after that. We get to about 1,500, that's where we had Joshua. Uh, Joshua... Uh, remember, got to see the Ten Commandments come, cross the Red Sea. He got to, um, he was on the mountain when the Ten Commandments came. He saw manna and quail. He saw the walls of Jericho come down. And we said he's like the Forrest Gump of the Old Testament. Like every famous thing that you can imagine, he is there. So Joshua got to see that. And they go into the Promised Land and they start living in the time of the judges. And there's a couple famous judge names that you might know. One was one that we covered. He's really strong named Samson, and remember the best thing in his life was actually the worst thing that ever happened to him physically. So we looked at Samson, but eventually uh, a pious young lady or a pious woman had a child, and uh, that child's name was Samuel. We talked about it last week, and he was the last of the judges. And In fact, Samuel is the one who gets to anoint the next king, so we have like King Saul, King David. So just take a pause here. Now Jonah, uh, God threatened and said, listen, if you guys don't start obeying me, uh, tribes in the north. I'm going to send Assyria down like a lion to devour you. And right during that time, while these prophecies were going on, God said, Jonah, actually, I want you to go talk to them in Nineveh and see what you can do. So he goes, now we're 100 years later, okay? 100 years later, and we've got a lot of people um, at this time, God had been threatening for a while to say, people of Judah, like Jeremiah, who stayed in Jerusalem, people of Judah, if you don't start obeying, the same thing's going to happen to you. And I'm going to send Babylon. He even says who it is. I'm going to send him, and he's going to um, take you out. Now, he even says by name, Nebuchadnezzar is the one who's going to take care of you. So this is the threat. So this is where, like, Ezekiel, remember, um, lived during this time. Jeremiah lived during this time. And some of the most famous are uh, four young men who are all friends. Uh, one was named Daniel. One was named Hananiah, uh, Mishael, and Azariah. So these guys are all four friends. And instead of staying back in Jerusalem, if you... Um, had a business and you were going to do a hostile takeover, you would most likely, and you were planning to close the business down anyway, you would take everything valuable. Some of you have businesses, so you're like, oh, okay, that's exactly what I would do. Um, you would go and take everything that you perceive as valuable, get rid of all the rest, and if they have any decent employees at all, and if they're going under, they probably don't have that many good employees, but if they do, you would take all those good employees, right, and try and get them to work into your company. Well, that's what these, um, these countries would do. They would go in, um, uh, at the time, it's Nebuchadnezzar goes in and he says, listen, I want your best and brightest young men to come with me. I want your best top people, like 10,000 plus people. I'm taking them. 
and I'm going to take you of all values. So the temple um, that was so beautiful, Solomon's temple, which really wasn't that big, but it was like layered in gold and all this other cool stuff that everyone looked to, he stole everything from it. The cups, the gold, the lampstands, a lot of this stuff actually got put in storage, which is good. But for the most part, they stripped this thing down, and we always say, well, that's no big deal. Well, to give you an idea what a big deal this would have been to the people of Jerusalem, when they came back under Ezra, this is like in another hundred years, when they came back and the people who had seen the original temple and its beauty saw the rebuilt temple, they cried. Not because they were happy. They cried because they said, this is, this is nothing like the other one used to be. It was such a sad time. Um, so they take these men, though, Daniel and his friends, Hananiah and um, Azariah and Mishael, they take these men who are very bright, men's, they take these men who are very bright, and they put them in a whole new culture, and it would have been a totally new culture. Um, instead, they had cool names. That meant like, God is my strength. That's what Daniel means. And, um, you know, when people came in from Europe, and they got to the United States, and they try and say their name, and you ask people, like, what's your name? And they're like, well, here's my name in America, but my last name got changed when they came into America, because they can't say it. This happens a lot of times with Eastern Bloc countries, or a friend of ours is Finnish, so he came over. They couldn't say his name, essentially, so they change it. Well, this happens all the time. They did the same thing. It wasn't American enough. They did the same thing when they went into Babylon. They get there, and they're like, God, no, 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 no. So then it becomes like Marduk is my strength. And they actually changed all of these guys' names. Daniel, his name is Belteshazzar. Um, but for ease of, so I say it correctly, I'm going to just say Daniel. So they changed all their names and they really paganized their names. So all four of these friends has these cool names that said God is um, king and things like that. God's going to look after us. They change them all. Um, they're in a city that would have been like no place they had ever seen. Have you ever heard stories of what Babylon was like? Um, they said there's a hundred gates that went around Babylon. Um, it, w- it straddled the mighty Euphrates River. So it was this, mu- and the walls were so massive, they could do chariot rides all the way around them. So this was an amazing place. And you say, well, well, what about construction? This is like 700 years before Jesus, 600 years, I should say, um, before Jesus. Well, they uh, had statues that were 300 feet tall, temples. Um, the great gardens, the hanging gardens of Babylon, those were probably made um, during the time of the the Persians, we'll talk about that in a second, but those are 400 feet tall. And it's not just like, um, like we have these little cool things like this and they hang like plants over them. They built like a ziggurat kind of thing, you know, like those step deals, 400 feet tall that would have had all the exotic plants of the world around and all these exotic animals. And I, I think you actually get to see it. Is there a movie, Alexander? I, I think it's in the movie because I think the animals go wild in the movie just for show. But That would have been an accurate statement. So they would have come here, this massive, massive city. Some have estimated, and I I think it might be a stretch, but five times the size of London, and London is huge. So I I don't think it was quite that big, but it's this massive city, massive walls, a different language. Um, They Babylonized their names or paganized their names, and here these guys sit, these young men, probably under 20. Can you imagine, have you ever been to a foreign country and just how, uh, like, eye-opening that is? So they drop these guys in, and... um, Things are going okay. Um, they're starting to learn the language. Um, a couple food things, but we're not going to get into that. But then the king has a dream. And these guys are all made wise men. And I actually, um, I didn't tell this accurately with Pharaoh. Pharaoh is not the one who wouldn't tell the dream. Pharaoh did tell the dream. So thanks if you did look that up and you didn't shoot me an email that says, Dear Pastor. You can send me those emails, but no one did, uh, which tells me no one checked. 
<laughs> but uh, so what happened was King Nebuchadnezzar is actually uh, smarter, I think, than Pharaoh. And he says, I've had this dream. Um, I've got a dream. And you guys, uh, you have to tell me what it is and what it means. And then all the, the wise men at the time are saying, oh, that, that's too crazy hard. So he gets so angry, um, he sends out his man to go kill all the wise men in the city because he's so upset about this. He runs into Daniel, and it says he talked to him with wisdom and tact. So Daniel's like, whoa, 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 let's just back off here a little bit. Let me go talk to the king. So he goes to talk to the king. He says, give me a little time. Daniel huddles up with his friends, Ananiah and, uh, Hananiah and uh, Mishael and Azariah, and they, they huddle and they pray, you know, God, help us in this situation. And God, not only does God show Daniel this dream, it's a, an exotic dream. It's got like gold head of the statue and clay feet. You probably read it once before. Um, not only does he show him, but he tells him what it means. So he goes to Pharaoh. I mean, he goes to Nebuchadnezzar, and he says, here's your dream, and he's already amazed, and he says, here's what it means. And the, it's not even good news for him. It says he's going to be taken down, but he doesn't care. He thinks this is so awesome. He gives Daniel a promotion. And so Daniel is one of the top guys in the whole country, and he stays with the court of Nebuchadnezzar. So things are going great, right? And in fact, while he's in there, he's like, um, I got these other friends, you know, they're good, they're good peeps. Can you, can you work them out? So he does. His friends, actually, because of this dream, um, Hananiah and Azariah, they get to come along, okay? So they, they have places. They're in charge of providence stuff, and Daniel's inside the court. Things are going great again. Has anyone seen the LED sign that they're putting up by the outlet mall? That's 70 feet tall. You haven't seen it? It's huge. Uh, they haven't put the LED part up, sorry. They're, just the construction part of it, it's huge. And this was a big city council thing because it's way, uh, anyway. But the outlet mall pretty much pays for everything in the whole city because of taxes, so we just let it go. So this, this, this is 70 feet tall, which I would guess is taller than this roof. Um, well, and I didn't measure this. And um, this is 70 feet tall, but Nebuchadnezzar gets this idea. He says, hey, I want to build a statue that's 90 feet tall, which is probably like pedestal plus statue. Covered in gold. It's not a solid gold statue. It would have been covered in gold. So he builds a statue and he says, you know what? He's really impulsive. You'll figure this out in a second. Um, he builds a statue and he says, unless you worship this statue, you're, you're going to die. Well, Daniel, it doesn't seem to affect because he's in the court and I don't know how that, that works, but his three friends, I think you know how the story goes, right? Do you know what his three friends' names are? Yeah, Shadrach. This is their Babylonian names um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these are. The Willems, if they ever have kids, said they want to name them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I have now started praying that you have triplets and you come through in your word. <laughs> get a lot of insurance, by the way, for grade school in case they get beat up. Um, but there's three of them. They can outnumber other people. So these three guys refuse to bow down, and they have one of the coolest statements ever. Um, as they, they go before the king, other times in Scripture we have promises, and these people talk big because they say God's going to deliver you. I mean, like um, Elijah, for example. When he goes against the prophets of Baal, who, could you imagine doing that? Like, go ahead, dump water on it. I don't care. He prays, and God sends down fire. This has not happened to me before, because I know, uh, I'm pretty sure, and I haven't prayed about it. He um, says this. I think these guys are the coolest. Uh, I, sorry, the sun's a little tricky. Um, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But, you know, even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. How does the king like this? I said he's pretty impulsive. 
he gets super angry, uh, and he says, like, stoke that fire. And it says times seven, and I don't know if it literally means seven times hotter because I don't think they had thermometers. I think it means seven, probably a number of completeness, or maybe they got, I don't know. They stoke it up so much that these big bulky men, it says, go to push him into the fire, die. And so Nebuchadnezzar's watching this, and he sees four people walking around, and he's like, this is unbelievable. The guys come out of the fire, and you know the story. The three come out. They don't even smell. It says that it doesn't even smell like smoke or anything like that. And uh, he is so amazed. He's like, praise be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He has sent his angel to save you. So now he's totally flip sides. And then he has this great line, which I think, this tells you how impulsive he is. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of these men be cut to pieces and their houses turned into piles of rubble. It's like, whoa, 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 back off. A little too much, too much. I mean, just, let's just recognize God as true God. But this is what goes down. Uh, and everything, again, is going pretty well. We don't know how old they are at this time. They would have been, like, probably under 20. They worked for three years. So I'd say around 20. Sometime during this time, the fiery furnace goes on. Speed ahead again. Um, do you know how old Daniel is when we start talking lion's den? Again, like all my Bible history stories have this guy like 25. I think that's the only one they could, they had one model that they just did all their drawings of. Um, like Jacob, he's 25, he knows like 70. Um, the same thing is with Daniel. Daniel's probably close to 80 or more. So Daniel's 80 years old, and somehow he's sort of just sort of drifted into the background um, because the, the power of the Babylonian government is starting to tilt away. Do you know who takes over? Cyrus the Great. So Cyrus the Great is an amazing general for the Persians. And um, he starts to come in, and he sees, and he wants the great city of Babylon. It's obviously, this would be a trophy. And he really wants it. And so he starts to get the idea. He battles the guys of uh, the Babylonians. They start to lose, and they go into the city, and they lock themselves in. And they are so confident in their walls, they throw a party. They're not worried about these guys on the outside at all. I mean, whatever. Um, well, while the party's going on, the Cyrus and his army is starting to dig these trenches and these canals uh, because what goes into the city, you imagine this, right in the middle is the Euphrates River, a mighty river. And he starts building these canals to the side. And these guys don't care. Belshazzar, who is the leader or the king at the time, he's a grandson or a relative of Nebuchadnezzar, starts throwing a party. They start getting lit. And um, they're actually using the vessels that they stole from the temple. It says that in the Bible. So this is not going well while they're digging. Just imagine this. They're digging and digging. Well, during the party, literally the handwriting on the wall, that's where the phrase comes from, shows up on the wall and it says, many, many, tekel, parson. And they said, I don't know, what does that mean? You're not going to get a lot of good ideas when people are drinking heavily at a party with an army outside. That, that already is a bad idea. So they, this uh, woman says, you know what? There's a guy named Daniel who can do stuff like this. So they call in Daniel, and Daniel says, um, it means your days are numbered, and you have been found wanting. How about that? I mean, imagine that as a greeting card. You have been found wanting. This would be like, you're fired. You have been found wanting. Um, so that's what happens. And that night, they open up. And you can imagine, if I was doing the movie, it would be so cool. Because while this writing is going on the wall, like going like this, you'd see like the canal starting to open, and it pulls the water away from the Euphrates River. And literally, the army of Persia goes into the riverbank, walks under the wall, puts up their ladders, goes into the palace, and that night Belshazzar says, you've been found wanting, and your days are numbered. He is killed by the Persian army. Pretty cool. Well, not that cool. I mean, I'm not saying death is awesome. But So, it's a lot of history. I said this is kind of packed full. It's not going to be like this in the coming weeks. So, we have this amazing story 
um, where now there's a brand new regime. And normally if there's a new regime, like if we have, we got Democrats in the office now, if Republicans came in, generally it's like a clean sweep, right? I can't imagine them saying like, hey, Joe Biden's pretty cool. Can we just, we just keep him on as like a vice president? Can you imagine something like that? Not likely, okay? And, um, but Daniel is so good at his job that he puts him at number three. He's one of the three top guys under the new king or the new guy, Cyrus or Darius, or Darius, some people say. So Daniel's there, and then underneath them are 120 guys who are known as satraps. And things are going great. The king likes Daniel so much that he says, I want to make you, I want to make you in charge of the whole nation. Right? This is going well. Uh, how do you think the other 122 guys felt about that? This guy is a foreigner. Um, he's Jewish. They're probably all Persian or at least Babylonian. And this guy is like a leftover that they stole. And now he's like, they don't like it at all. And they say, we got to get rid of this guy. So here's their plan. They start looking um, to try and devour Dan- Daniel and take him out. And it says this. The administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Think about like the, thing, the mistakes you make just like doing your family budget or something like that. This guy runs a nation or one of the types who runs a nation. He's doing with, um, working with money. He's working with budgets. He's doing re-expense reports, the whole deal, and not a single thing. And it's not just like looking at it yourself or your boss. trying to. You can hide stuff from your boss, I think. This is 122 other people who want him out, and they can't find a single thing. And I think that's a testimony to his name. Remember what his name is? Daniel means God is my judge. Isn't that cool? Um, because he's not saying, I'm trying to impress the people at work. I'm not trying to just impress my boss. It doesn't matter who is watching. He's above board. Uh, he's got aptitude, and he does it all. So their only solution, they, they brainstorm for a while. These 122 other guys, um, they brainstorm a while, and they think they have a plan. Once in a while, though, on Sunday, do you ever feel like um, what you read in the Bible makes sense for the Bible times, but it doesn't really make sense for your own life? When you hear about these stories of people, is Daniel living in a cave? Like just praying to himself, and he's like, yeah, he follows the Lord in some secret cave. The guy runs a country. He's got a hundred, you talk about workplace ethics. I, I honestly don't understand your jobs. I really don't. I'd like to. Um, but I've, for 10 years, I've been full-time ministry. I can't understand. I worked at a lumber yard, and that's as close as I get to living in the real world. But I got paid the least and had the hardest job, so people love me. I mean, this is what happens when you're part-time. They're like, part-timers, they're awesome. Um, Daniel is hated by these men in his workplace because he's Jewish. Not because he's lazy, not because he's negligent, not because he's not doing things, not because he's dumping work on you, not because he's telling the boss what you haven't done, just because of who he is and because he's actually good. So does that sound like work to you? Does that make some sense? I mean, having a real-life job and everyone else being angry at you doing well. I think it sounds kind of accurate. So they have this plan, and they say, we got to get rid of this guy. And here's their plan. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this guy uh, man Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Now that is truly awesome. Can you, ima- 
if someone's like, hey, we've got to take this person down at work, can you imagine they look at your life and say, the only way we're going to do it is if we figure out some way that they, because they love Jesus too much. Isn't that cool? So this is the plan they come up with. They said, this is how we're going to take them down. And I think you know the story. They say, King, um, all the satraps, all the administrators have this idea. We want to just worship you. It's like um, Nebuchadnezzar Awareness Month. We just want to worship you as God for the next 30 days. He says, hey, this sounds cool. I'm going to do it. So at this point, what are Daniel's options? You know how the story goes, and you're like, well, of course, he's not going to do anything else. But have you ever made a decision ever in your life that you didn't at least rationalize the possibility of doing the other thing that isn't right? Ever? I mean, that, that these rationalizations of, I, there's a better, you know, maybe I could do this and it'd be okay. Daniel is in charge of this whole nation. He's about to be number two in command. The future's bright. He's 80 years old. Uh, what is it? 80's the new 30. I mean, he's doing great. And he has this idea, maybe I could help the people, the Jewish people that live here, right? I mean, when you think that, a year later, they start sending the Jewish people back to Jerusalem. Did you know that? Who do you think had to do with that? Probably Daniel. So, wouldn't that enter his brain that says, you know what, I'm probably more valuable if I'm alive than I am dead. The Bible never says where I worship or how I pray. Right? Doesn't that make some sense? Doesn't it just, uh, it seems like it would make some sense? Uh, or maybe he's got family. I don't know if he has family. Probably not, um, which is a different story, but it probably doesn't have family. But, I mean, he's thinking about all the people who care about him, and you're thinking, okay, aren't they better off if I'm not dead and devoured by lions at this point? And it's only a month, right? Maybe, maybe I could just bow down and pray to my God, right? And just not, I'm not going to do what they're doing. I'm going to just make it look like I'm doing what they're doing. And no one's going to know because I'm really praying. And what really matters is my relationship with God, right? I think these rationalizations pop up all the time, don't they? You know, budgets are tight. Uh, we should probably just move in together. I mean, it just makes sense because then we could save money. And we could probably give more money to church. Or Daniel maybe thought, you know what, I, I'll just do this. I don't want to make this king mad. Um, I'm not going to have a chance to convert him or witness to him if I'm dead. So what if I, I just go along with it, and then after that process, I'll just make sure to really talk about faith to him. Things like that enter your head. You go hang out with some friends, and you're at a party, and you're like, well, if I don't hang out with the friends who really need Jesus, I'll never have a chance to witness to them. And on and on and on and on. What does Daniel do? You can open up your service folder if you want. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about the royal decree. And then they go on. And eventually, you know how it happens. Daniel gets thrown in the lion's den. So in short, though, what did Daniel do? Nothing different. He didn't hide. He didn't shut the gates. He didn't do anything like that. Instead, he goes home to an open window, looks to Jerusalem, and prays three times a day, which just as an aside, you're like, I'm so busy. I don't have time to teach my kids about the Bible, or I'm so busy. I don't have Bible class. I can't go to church. This guy ran a country, and he prays three times a day on his knees. Anybody more busy than that? 
Okay, we'll just let it be. I'm just, just mentioning that. So Daniel um, goes through, he goes to the lion's den. And as a kid, though, do you ever think that this is probably like not that difficult a decision? If someone came to you right now and said, listen, I got a lion's den, or you worship, uh, you can worship a false god or the devil, or you can go to the lion's den. Is there anybody here who would fail that test? Just like no one fails the Solomon test. If God appears to me in the night and says, what do you want? You can have anything in the whole world. I'm like, wisdom, check, right? If, the, if your actual life, just like Columbine, right, when it came down to it, a clear choice that said, worship God or worship the devil, is there anyone here who would balk at that? Even if it means you're going to die. But this is what's confusing, I think, because if the stakes are higher, shouldn't the decision be higher to, to make? Is there anybody here who would take a job that's inherently sinful? This is a big deal. This is your gainful employment for the coming months or years. Is there anybody here who would say, you know what, I should do that, even though I'm not going to fill in the blank for employment. You know, I need money, but you know, I'm going to do this because the money's good. I'm going to um, run drugs for a while. I think that's a good plan. Anybody? Don't raise your hand on that. You'll get arrested. <laughs> right. right, so no one is doing this. Is this confusing to you? It's because it's kind of confusing to me because if it's really clear that the stakes are high, we should really never, ever compromise and fall into sin or any kind of temptation. Because at the highest level, we're not going to do it. So why would we ever do it on the low level? In my mind, I think it's actually harder. When the devil came to uh, tempt Adam and Eve, did he say, hey, here's the deal. I'm Satan, uh, the prince of darkness, and you can worship me or worship God. What do you want to do? I think they would have passed that one. That's just my gut on it. I think they would have done pretty well. But what does Satan do? He says, does God really say? And he kind of makes this long loop around, and soon, at the end of the day, what do they realize? Their eyes are open, and they say, you know what? We just followed the devil rather than God. I think the devil does the same thing with us when it comes to decisions. It's not always the big ones, because those will, we're going to ace those. I mean, we, we would do well. I'm sure everyone in this room would do well if it involved, like, your job for life, uh, or your life, life and death. I think you'd nail it. But what happens, though, when it's not quite as clear in the witness no one else notices about. Um, do I spend time to teach my kids God's word? Never says that I have to do this every day. So do I do it? Do I pray every morning? Do I spend time myself in God's word? Do I make a point to confess my sins to God? And I know it doesn't say you have to do this every single day, so then what happens? You start making these decisions, right? Or you, um, you, you run into some other things, and that's where things like budgets come in, and you say, well, I could use the money, or my kids would be better off if I have a job than I don't have a job. And soon, like these tiny little things, whether you go to Bible class, whether you go to worship, whether you make a point to live your faith at work, these tiny little things, why is it that we're willing to compromise on those? Why are we willing to flick on a computer screen late at night? Why are we willing to do that, yet if it came down to it? Is that really any different? And have you ever found yourself just taking little steps, little steps, little steps, and suddenly your eyes are opened and you say, oh my God, I have followed the devil instead of my Lord. How in the world does Daniel make decisions? Not, I think the big thing's a big deal, but I think it's a bigger deal. They couldn't find anything in his life. I think that's a bigger deal. Every single day, 122 people trying to find out what's wrong with you and how you don't live your faith, and they couldn't find anything. How does he do that? You know, where does he look when he opens those windows? 
Jerusalem. Never says you have to do that, but he looks to Jerusalem where sacrifices were made. He looks to Jerusalem where a Savior would eventually walk, and he trusts. It's essentially saying in Jesus' name. And we do the same thing too, don't we? We say, this is a difficult choice. I want to make the right choice. In Jesus' name, give me the strength to do it. Daniel's a hero in my mind. Uh, but he's not, again, the, the real hero of the day. The real hero is a Savior who came and lived perfectly every single day. Who, who lived in such a way that people around him were always trying to even trick him. I don't need people to trick me to sin. I just do it on my own. He was like, trying to find people to trick him, and it couldn't happen. He goes all the way to cross, and you say, is this enough? And God says, absolutely it's enough. And I raised him from the dead to prove it. That's the kind of Savior you have. And I didn't mean to jump on you about how you pray compared to Daniel. And I don't want us to hold Daniel up as some miracle guy who never sinned. I'm sure he did. And as part of those prayers, I'm sure he said, Lord, I confess to you. Um, But I hope you find the strength, just like Daniel did, and a Savior that loves you to make the decisions, not just in the big things, but in the little things every single day of your life. Amen.